welcome to episode 52 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, in which we discuss the themes of well-being and sustainability in real estate and hospitality today. I'm your host, Matt Morley, founder of Biophilico Healthy Buildings. This time around, I'm in Perth, Western Australia, talking biophilic urbanism with Dr. Jana Soderlund. Jana did her PhD on biophilic design as an emergent social movement. She has an honours degree in environmental science and has spent her career as a sustainability consultant, an educator, tutor, lecturer and presenter. Currently, she is a director of Green Roofs Australasia, director of Design by Nature and an adjunct research fellow at Curtin University, as well as chair of Biophilic Cities Australia with a role on the Global Biophilic Cities Steering Committee. We discuss the history and origins of the biophilic design concept. We look at the biophilia hypothesis, applying biophilia at an architectural and even urban planning scale, how biophilic design incorporates benefits for both people and planet as well-being and sustainability, the benefits of biophilic design in schools and even prisons, look out for that bit, as well as the importance of beauty in biophilic design. So here she is, Dr. Jana Soderlund. Jana, welcome to the Green and Healthy Places podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Look, you've been in this for a while. I'm really interested to understand how your concept of biophilic design has perhaps evolved over the years on how you currently define it and its key characteristics. There are various models out there. There are various theorists who have attempted to pin it down and put it into 14 categories or boxes or what have you. You're out there, you're working in this field. What's your current working model of how you apply biophilic design? Um, It'd probably be good if, if you're okay if I start from how it emerged, like a little bit of the history of biophilic design because um, that really frames how I view it now, I think. Uh, so, and this is was part of my research. So it started with Eric Fromm, a psychoanalyst in the 60s, who wrote a book called The Heart of Man. And he posited that as humans, we suffer an anxiety about our separation from nature. And in seeking to overcome this anxiety, we go down two pathways, You know, we have a choice, regressive or progressive, and the regressive is where there's necrophilia and you're controlled by religion and rules and, um, you know, you suppress that anxiety. And the progressive path is what he calls the Buddha path about altruism and uh, where you overcome this anxiety and connect with nature, and that's where biophilia sits as a love of life, right? So then... Um, he had that then Eric, um, sorry, Wilson went in and he spent a period immersed deeply in nature and in that time from that he wrote a book called Biophilia and talking about that connection that he felt with nature and then he and Callot got together and had a chat and came up with the biophilia hypothesis that as human beings we are innately connected um, to nature and it's evolutionary that we respond to nature and all the patterns, forms, shapes, materials, um, smells, sights, sounds of nature, you know, and and the different spaces. So then Callot got a group of people together or a really diverse group and they discussed this, how can we bring it into our cities? And uh, 
biophilic design emerged from that. So I guess that's what I see. I think those 14 patterns that um, Terrapin, Bright Green, Bill Browning came up with are fabulous uh, because it is about, like he puts them in three categories and and they all sit nicely within there. But it, it is about not just greenery, but, you know, the materials and the shapes and the forms and and the patterns and, um, you know, like I said, smells and sights and sounds and bird calls and every aspect. And also, you know, the places um, like Prospect and Refuge, so where you sit, gaze at a view from a place of safety, you know, and a lot of these are survival responses. So you're safe, but you can see what's coming. You know, um, and and that's what sort of they're discovering more and more that about you know that they sort of can link them back to our our survival responses when we lived out of cities and more immersed in nature. So biophilic design to me is about integration and connection. You know, so integrating all of this aspects of nature as much as we can. Um, to create a connection between the place, our habitats and and humans, you know, where we can connect to nature. Because um, I think one of the things that doesn't seem to be recognised that much is we're actually designing our habitats. Our cities are our habitats. And when you frame it as such, it can take on a different view. You know, it's like um, in zoos where we used to keep animals in concrete cages with bars and now zoos, you know, they didn't do well there. So zoos now go to great lengths to recreate their more natural habitat and the animals do better. So if you, you, you extend that thinking into us as humans living in our cities, you know, like it would be nice to live in something a bit more connecting and natural to us. So you've you've introduced that idea of the biophilia hypothesis and specifically biophilic design being applied at scale. I think it often gets picked up in the media. It's very easy to show uh, photos of lots of plants in someone's house and call that biophilic design or, frankly, the same in, in an office building. I think what's fascinating about your work is, is how you're applying it at a, not just architectural but almost city planning or urban urbanism level. So... Talk to us about how biophilia and biophilic design can translate to not just buildings but neighbourhoods or cities, in your view. Oh, look, there's some great examples of this globally too. So, you know, if you look at a building, just started a building, it, it's about sort of the shape of the building, what it's built from, you know, the design, the aspect, but how it sits in its place as well, like whether um, some, you know, creating skylines that might reflect the hills behind or, or something and, you know, all the the airflow and the lighting and everything that goes with that. Um, one thing I like is the use of colonnades. Like there, there's a hotel in Singapore, the um, Pickering 
um, Park Royal Hotel. And that has this beautiful, it's in the CBD, beautiful streetscape of colonnades going down. So that evokes walking through a forest. And it's the building fabric is uh, like it's like strated rock the way they've created it, you know. So you and you walk in through these colonnades with patterns, curved patterns in this building fabric over overhead. Um, so you you feel like you're walking into a cave almost, and it, you know it's a, the hotel and the footpath that they've done for um, just for public use. You know, you walk down through the colonnades. There's there's water and variable lighting. So, you know, it's a real biophilic experience as you walk down. You know, and the whole hotel is made. Um, you know, it's got layered wood and different greenery. So, I think that's the thing with biophilic design is that. Yeah, there does tend to be this tendency to um, just think it's greenery, you know, and and plants where it's just so much more. You can create a really biophilic place without any nature, you know, green nature, you know, plants and so forth in that. Um, As far as taking it beyond the building to scale, um, I really like um, there's Melma in Sweden that have created like rain gardens, um, so all trapped stormwater and funneled into channels that then, you know, canals people can walk past and there's a real connection and their premise for this whole development was about biodiversity and and connection for people with nature, you know, um, utilising things like rain gardens to manage the stormwater and biodiversity has increased there. Uh, the other aspect, there's some great developments in Singapore and one I really like is called Kampung Admiralty. So Kampung is the name, traditional name for a village in Singapore and it's a mixed-use facility. So it's got transit right there. You can walk in and it's right from the start, it's got rain gardens and greenery and um, filtration ponds. And then you walk and it's all big open air meeting place. They've got a pharmacy and supermarkets and medical centre and a big hawker's market uh, with food stalls. And it's about eight storeys. And on each floor, they've... uh, put in rain gardens and filtration ponds to manage the water and then there's sort of a connecting two connecting walkways that go over to aged care units so this in, is in the midst of sort of traditional old high-rise um, social housing and there's a community garden also there. So when you go across into these aged care units and look back at this eight-storey mixed-use development, you just see a wall of green. It's just growing and it's just amazing. So that's their view from in this really high density is being able to just look at this greenery. I think it's fabulous. You know, so there's been some great aspects where, you know, also in Singapore they've done artificial canals um, with social housing and walkways, you know, so people can go along the the canal and 
also greenery, you know, green roofs and and so forth. So, uh, you know, it's about on that precinct level, it's it's having those connectors, it's having that space. So it's sitting the building right, having the building, you know, as an integration uh, of part of the precinct, but also having the space for people to wander out and then there's greater community engagement and, um, you know, increased well-being and mental health and so forth where, you know, you get that whole neighbourhood um, is more livable. And, you know, it's, I mean, if we're going into the benefits of that, you, you then have, you know, it's uh, reduces, you know, helps stormwater management and reduces urban heat and increases biodiversity, you know, so you get these multiple benefits that flow from creating a whole neighbourhood precinct or city. That's, I think what you're doing there is is showing how biophilic design is something I've always felt that it somehow bridges the worlds of sustainability and well-being. So planet and people bringing benefits to both. And you've, you've switched from talking about the human aspects of the well-being and then look at the same time we're doing this in terms of reducing the environmental impact, in terms of reducing the urban heat island. So do you see, in a sense, almost added uh, benefits of working at scale beyond typically we built by affiliate on an interior project? It tends to be more about the human aspect. We can reduce the, the sustainable or the, the environmental impact in terms of the materials and what have you, but it's always limited, right? Because there's only so much we can do. But you're suddenly able, it seems, to talk on a much wider scale and to be able to you know, talk about perhaps a city-wide approach to um, uh, reduced environmental impact and uh, increased sustainability, right? That sort of opens up a whole other discussion. Yeah, well, I think it's a really important part and this is something when I present or meet with people, I really try and push home is the multiple benefits because often there will be... Um, you know, something implemented like a green roof, right? And the initial driver will be stormwater management. And once, like, and you're just, they'll look, this has happened in Washington and a lot of North America use green roofs to reduce their stormwater. Um, so, and once the green roof is in place, then all the other benefits are suddenly discovered, you know, of... Uh, like the Chicago City Hall, the iconic green roof that was put in, uh, the mayor made, you know, built that, um, had it installed because of an um, excessive heat wave in Chicago, a lot of people died. So he wanted to cool the city. So he built that um, on the City Hall. It was next to the, the country hall, like they share the same roof top, Chicago County. And so... Um, they were able to study the benefits as far as, you know, the cooling and um, reducing energy consumption. But by doing that, they also discovered what it meant for them to have access to this roof. And when I saw it, it, it looked, it was like a, a sort of patch of dry weeds, you know, because it, it was heading into winter. But it was beautiful because, you know, they said we can also see the seasons and that's really important. So, you know, now they've got a beehive there and 
um, because bees tend to get attracted. And this has happened. I hear these stories. People do a green roof and then, oh, there's lots of bees. Let's do a beehive. And and so, you know, there's another woman in, in Washington. She was amazing. She just worked and worked and worked to get a green roof on her building and she got kids disadvantaged kids to come and help and all of that she goes out there every evening and it's her place of peace and she does all these tours for people and so you know that where you can start with the installation for one reason all the others soon are discovered and um, there also tends to be a ripple effect, you know, like that's happened in Washington. Oh, look at their green roofs. I want one now. And um, as people discover these multiple benefits. But that's the really important thing for people to understand that by installing or utilising biophilic design, you're addressing a lot of social benefits. You know, you really help um, with mental health and well-being, and that that's a big thing at the moment. Like I know in COVID, so many people found the place they they went to, they sought out green places, you know, because it reduced stress, but also maybe helped them feel a bit connected in a time of isolation. You know, so we have all the human aspects, increased community engagement and walkability and you know, you can do density better, like um, by doing it well and clever utilising biophilic design like like Melma. So, you know, you have these multiple social and then you have the multiple environmental benefits like stormwater management and increase of biodiversity and reducing urban heat and, you know, helping with carbon um, reduction um and you know all all these yeah other oh, food security is also a big big one because we're able to grow food on green roofs or around uh so you know there's a, yeah i think it's really important to look at the multiple benefits because then the business case gets made you know really strong because that's a lot of the pushback oh it's going to cost more to do things this is often with you know green roofs and so forth it's going to cost more and the maintenance but um once the multiple benefits are understood you know then it does make a stronger business case and and it helps you know with general health so and reducing urban heat so you get less people hospitalized with heat stress and so forth and it reduces crime They've done studies to show that when, you know, there's nature or a biophilic designed place, crime goes down, people feel more altruistic as well. You know, it's, it's yeah. The, and the successes that you're seeing around the world, are they typically led by private businesses or is it more of a top-down approach where city planning needs to be engaged as well? Is it a combination of the two? It is a combination of the two. Like um, it's been both, it both, both happen. Sometimes it, I've seen it community driven, and, but this is where they need to work with government, I guess, to have enabling policies. Like um, I know places where community gardens have been started by people, you know, and or they've wanted to 
you know, design a house with a green roof or have it a bit more biophilic or whatever. And there can be, you know, bureaucracy and unsupporting policies that that bump up against. It can be hard work. So the idea is where government can help community by having enabling policies for them. Um, you know, it, it's it's also like in some places like Chicago to do the green roofs. They did theirs to show that it could be done for developers and then they put it into policy, right? Um, and developers, they, they, they were so angry. Like I talked to the guy I had to front up to, you know, the, the government city planner had to talk to developers and sometimes he said they were spitting mad but now they don't have to regulate it now everyone expects their green roof and they've realized the multiple benefits that have come for them as developers so there are places where yes you do need that strong um leader you know the local champion to go this is what we have to do and they'll suffer the pushback but in other places, it's community wanting to do something different or have a better neighbourhood or, you know, be able to create something where they can connect. And community are great at self-organising places and, you know, we've got to give credence to the wisdom of the masses, you know. So, um, yeah, they, I, th- I think, it, you know, it, it varies from place to place, really, you know. So, but ideally, it's all working when you get it coming together. You've got great synergies. And looking at where it's then applied, the different sectors in which you can see the most benefits. We there are some great examples of hospitals around the world, and I'm particularly interested in elderly care homes, for example, and how they can integrate biophilia mm-hmm. for people with dementia and what have you. There's there's some really interesting work around that. But what about at the other end of the age spectrum around schools? It's perhaps not so common, but I, I do see some examples occasionally that pop up on my radar of schools trying to do things in a more, let's say, biophilic or sustainable way. So how, how do you see that particular sector? Has it got big opportunity there? Is there much more work to do? Or what could the challenges be of taking that into the world of education? Um, yes, I think there are challenges and I think there's great opportunities and I think it's a really vital area to be um, implementing biophilic design in because, you know, I, I see and hear a lot of stories with our young people in schools and the mental health challenges, you know, and mental health is decreasing in schools um, and, you know, to help, like, to go have a place which is not stressful. It's the other thing that they've done studies about to understand this is sort of a little bit where the prison work I've done comes from, is that hard-edge architecture stresses us, you know, where where it's it's just very um, industrial, you know, actually stresses us as people so you you're wanting these children to often go into classrooms like there's some classrooms in the world that that don't even have windows they can see out of and I know a lot of the American ones are like that so you can imagine the stress especially if they have a school shooter you know they they're hearing noise they can't see it's yeah um 
it can be pretty hard. But what they've, they've found is even having a few pot plants increases learning re- rates, you know, because it helps improve um, cognitive processing. Um, so, and I think when, when you've got something, you know, again, triggering that sense of connection and well-being when students can walk into a classroom and feel that they, they do, they learn better, they're less stressed because even it's an innate sort of stress that can happen. And also I've been working with school groups and there's one that a new school built in my city and it was just very industrial, minimal sort of, but touted as the great new school and an extension's being done and the kids there want to have a lot of greenery. They want to incorporate more patterns, be able to better windows and and just softer. You talk to them all about biophilic design and that's what they're wanting. And they've actually got funding, this group. It's called Millennium Kids. And they're working on incorporating biophilic design for schools. And I'm also sort of um, a, a friend, colleague, is he's interested in getting biophilic soundscapes into schools. And so globally, there, there has been a lot done, um, you know, in getting some of this happening in schools with great results, like they're just finding um, learning rates to improve, that behaviour improves, like they're less disruptive and happier to come to school. Um, I don't know if you remember Sandy Hook, it was side of a mass shooting in 2012 and they demolished the school and rebuilt and the school that they built was all based on biophilic design and it's just it's stunning because and they did it because they wanted a sense of safety and security but connection and beauty in there and it's even like on the on the walls the you know the fabric they've created sort of trees patterns and and like a leaf pattern on the floor and they have little treehouse breakout rooms sort of nooks and lighting and you know it's all and and rain gardens out the front like it's quite a stunning school that um yeah they're happy to go to now you you start to see how biophilic design really sits within perhaps a slightly wider concept around well-being design and creating spaces for physical and mental well-being you mentioned prisons, well-being design, biophilic design and prisons may not necessarily be two things we'd associate together, but that's why I wanted to ask you about it. So tell us, how does that work? uh... Yeah, well, um, typically prisons, you know, and this is the, the pushback you get from prison people is that they're in there to be punished, right? So they go in and their cells, you know, and prisons, they're pretty harsh places, and just all, you know, brick and concrete and hard edge. So um, there's some great work done by a woman. She started to work with gardens, but then she ended up doing some research and it's called the Blue Room and it works with Supermax prisoners in um, a a prison in, in Oregon and they just show videos of nature. So when... A prisoner is getting agitated, 
or they have to transfer or something, they'll go and they'll watch videos and they have the ones they prefer, the prisoners have, and they become more compliant. Stress rates go for also the guards, the, the staff, their stress rates reduce and all of that. And they've found it's just been quite amazing, the difference in behaviour. Now, Scandinavia, um, they have learned to do prisons they have a lot of biophilic design within their prisons and make sure there's lighting and and use color and um shapes and forms and you know curved areas and artwork and all of that and they have low recidivism rates you know um, less reoffending people and because what ultimately if you're wanting to rehabilitate and help someone, then don't put them in a stressful, you know, cave box of, of um, you know, concrete and brick, which is I've talked to prisoners and they, they're very stressed when they can't get a view or anything. So they're trying to, you know, to change, teach new behaviours or help with learning in while they're stressed. Same with schools, you know, you need to, to feel relaxed and and once you've stress reduces your cognitive functioning improves as i understand it the issue around staff workers in prisons is is really urgent in the u.s at the moment and the idea that creating a space not just for the for the prisoners but for those employed within the prisons that is slightly more amenable to long shifts, stressful, incredibly stressful yeah. situations. So it's there's, there's almost the two sides yeah. to the argument, right? Also thinking about the staff who have to spend yes. their days in there dealing with the what, it, what can only be a difficult um, yeah, social context. So I think it's uh, mm. clear that there are many ways we can, we can think about biophilic design within the context of a, a city. I just wanted to close with one question about your book. I downloaded the the, um, oh, the, the, okay. the teaser yeah. uh, the other day, yeah. so I've read the first. But tell us a little bit about that and, and how, you, how you came to it. And it's obviously out there in the world. How's that been going with the book? Are you working on anything new in terms of publications? Um, I have a few papers published and one's just about to, to be published um, about the how to implement biophilic design based on my research. So the book came about um, through my research for my PhD and I, I looked into the history. That's where I looked into the history of biophilic design. But to do this, I went, I travelled North America and I interviewed a lot of the the leaders in the field, like Stephen Callot, um, and where biophilic design had been implemented to find out why you know what 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 was the driver the initial driver for it and uh that that was really interesting you know talking to people i think i did 30 odd interviews but they're they're written up as sort of stories conversational stories and uh, i i learned a lot and had some fabulous conversations but you know out of that you could see see the evolution of it and how, you know, I got those initial drivers of whether it was stormwater management or urban heat, but the ripple effect and and then discovering the multiple benefits. And um, from that, I made a framework to how to mainstream it. So, you know, that's, it's all in the book, but I've written it 
as a you know so you learn um a lot about biophilic design but also it's as a easy read you know um to hear the stories and the discussions and people's ideas about um you know and a bit about aesthetics because i guess that's one of the big things about biophilic design too that i haven't mentioned is the beauty that's very important to us um and we respond to beauty you know and aesthetics so i've seen lots of high rated lead buildings or six star here you know all energy efficient but they leave out the biophilic design they leave out that human connection and they're not really sustainable because people don't you know they find they might meet all the energy targets but they don't meet the human targets and when people are in a beautiful place or connecting to a building then um they're less likely to want to go to work there so so that's an important yeah. point to close on. I think Let, let's draw a line under it there. Okay. Thank you so much for your time, Yana. It was great. Okay. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. I enjoyed it.